With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to a special edition of Flat Chat. I'm Stuart Codling and I'll be back with Mark Gallagher and Ben Anderson on January the 30th. We'll have a new edition of F1 Racing to look at amongst other news. In the meantime, here's some of what the people upstairs like to call bonus content. A couple of months ago, we celebrated the 10th anniversary of Jensen Button's World Championship by revealing some of the previously little-known details of that year. The Braun GP CEO Nick Fry was kind enough to share his memories, from the shock of Honda deciding to close the team, to its rebirth as Braun GP and the acquisition by Mercedes. Feedback from our readers about the story was really positive, but as usual with such things, there was a lot of interesting stuff that just wouldn't fit on the page. So here, just for you, is the full recording of Nick Fry's visit to the F1 Racing office. It, it is a lot to get over in, in quite a short amount of time, a limited amount of book real estate. But the kind of the first thing that jumped out at me while making my way through the book at the beginning was that Honda basically wanted an immediate shutdown. So you in what, end of November, beginning of December 2008, you were summoned to this meeting in a slightly down market hotel in a small uh, meeting room and were told, okay, right, we're off, bye. Yeah, I mean, we we, we were summoned, um, Ross and myself, to see our, our Japanese boss, who we had a good relationship with, and you know, we expected a you know, not a good meeting. We expected uh, a, a big cutback, and we'd uh, done enough homework to cut back the budget by about a third. So you know, we were prepared for what we thought was a bad situation, and um, this poor gentleman, uh, Mr. Ashima, um, really pretty much in tears told us that you know kind of that was it they were uh, they were off um you know the situation on the business side that the start of the financial crisis was was that bad that they couldn't actually spend money on formula one and um you know please go to brackley and uh, tell them all to go home turn off the lights was 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 really you know the literal message were you kind of thinking on your feet at that point and having to point out to them that there are UK employment laws? You can't just sort of say, that's it, bye. Yeah, I mean, we, we went from a, a meeting of the three of us um, to a much larger conference room, and uh, that was filled with uh, a larger array of people who... But, they, you know, they clearly the, the, the idea was that we should, um, we should close down. And, uh, you know... I think I was the one uh, that said, uh, "Well, you can't do that, and you've got to give us a chance." And uh, you know, to be fair to Honda, it's a you know a very big, honourable company. And uh, you know, after some discussion, we were we were given a month, which uh, you know, running up to Christmas of uh, 2008, with the uh, the world's uh, worst uh, financial crisis in most people's minds, uh, didn't give us a lot of time. And um, we met some dodgy characters. A sort of a fire sale like that does bring some quite eccentric people out of the woodwork i suppose uh, if i mentioned vj malia first he's among the less <laughs> eccentric people that you actually encountered and showed an interest and to I, I was flabbergasted when i read in your book that firstly he'd shown an interest literally within months of having bought force india as he was then renaming it but also that Ross very quickly decided he was a time waster, but not before you'd had to sit waiting for what was it five hours for him to turn up to a, a dinner meeting? Yeah, it was it was it was a long wait, but we did get a very good curry at the end of it. So there was a uh, a late night reward. <laughs> so uh, it wasn't all bad. But um, no, VJ was one of the people who who did express an interest and. Um, he, frankly, was one of the most uh, more honourable people that expressed an interest, which uh, which says a lot. And, you know, it, it really was a, a situation where you had to kiss a lot of frogs. And, um, you know, we really couldn't leave any stone unturned, which meant uh, there was a lot of uh, complete time wasters and a lot of uh, 
time spent uh, over Christmas of that year, at least on my part, and uh, Nigel Kerr was the finance director, meeting people who clearly, you know, were just having a look and having a go, or money laundering, or uh, or even worse. So, uh, um, but in those situations, it might have been the right the right one. Um, so, I mean, really, we have, were nowhere close to resolving the situation of the future until really well into two thousand and nine, when. You know, we started to uh, to do well by that stage, and uh, the quality of uh, potential purchasers and people who would uh, help us in the future went up immensely. Do you kind of look at Formula One from a distance now, and at some of the characters who are associated with either buying teams or bringing a lot of sponsorship to teams, and kind of mop your brow and think there, but for the grace of God, went I? Um, on the one hand, you can you can you can think that way. On the other hand, part of the reason I wanted to uh, to write the book was I really have had the you know huge pleasure in my career, and I think there's probably another book to uh, to be written about this. Written uh, worked with some of the the real icons of the um, the car industry. I mean, one of the first people I worked with, uh, um, you know, was um, w- w- was the head of motorsport for Ford. Uh, for a long period of time. Obviously, I worked with Tom Walkinshaw for uh, a long time with Aston Martin, uh, Walter Hayes, who was the uh, the father of the DFE, Jackie Stewart. And uh, and, and I've had the, a huge... Um, it's been humbling to work with such great people. And I think the time um, that I was in Formula One, um, there were some great characters, and you can think what you, you, you might of them, but they they were there for a reason. And I think there's... When people are negative about, uh, you know, they'll they say negative things about someone like Flavio Briatore. Um, and my first question to these people of, have you ever even met the person? And invariably the answer's uh, no. And these people, you know, do have interesting or maybe flawed characters, but they're there for a reason. They got to those heights because they have a skill, in Flavio's case, maybe a you know, fantastic marketing skill. And, you know, whilst on the one hand you can say they're scoundrels, on the other hand, you know, I wanted to record a little bit of what it was like to work with some of these people because it was, in the main, a great pleasure and they were there for a reason. They got to those the heights because they were just fantastic entrepreneurs and fantastic entrepreneurs sometimes aren't the best people in a corporate environment and I guess uh, the reason uh, I survived as long as I I did survive in Formula One was because I do come from a corporate background and I'm probably quite good at dealing with big companies and big sponsors. The restructuring you underwent uh, with with what became the Braun GP team kind of was the making of it wasn't it? You'd gone from a very tightly structured uh, organisation that kind of you, you probably in hindsight, had a lot of interference from above, didn't you, I suppose, as, as, as part of the Honda machinery. As an independent entity, you had to sort of slim down. And one of the things that really comes through in the book is that you had to make some very tough decisions early on in terms of who to keep, who to let go. You mentioned a lot of names on the keep list, the likes of James Valves, Ron Meadows, Andrew Shovlin, who were prominent people that you felt needed to stay. And those people are very much linchpins of the multi-title winning Mercedes Grand Prix operation now. Yeah, I think the thing I'm most proud of, and I think Ross would probably say the same, is, you know, you have to look at what you left behind. And, you know, what we left behind um, was a great team um, and it's continued to be a great team. We hired some fantastic people. And, you know, to be fair to uh, even going back to Adrian Reynard and Craig Pollock before I arrived at the team, you know, people like Andrew Shovlin and, and Ron Meadows, you know, were there before I was there. Um, so these are people who, you know, have got huge experience um, and that's why they're so difficult to beat. I mean, they have got great resources. They have got, um, you know, great backing from Mercedes-Benz. But those people have worked together for, you know, 20, 20 years probably in some cases. And it's a very tightly knit team. You know, they can they can work together almost without speaking because they know exactly how each of them, um, you know, reacts. So it's uh, it, it will be a tough job to beat them uh, you know anytime soon if we kind of drill down a little further into those first few months of 2009 was there a sense of kind of increasing dread or desperation as you tried to find potential owners or investors you know you, you talk about the mysterious Achilles 
Kaliakis, who I'm keen to know more about because he seems like a fascinating character. There's a picture of him in in the panels in the book and uh, exactly how you rumbled him in the end because people like that come along and seem very impressive and you you investigate them. Do you spend 10 grand uh, with a corporate detective we, we, agency? We spend 10 grand um, with a uh, an agency called Kroll, who is one of the... Uh, yeah, really the most famous detective agencies and um you know we got them to look at some of the prospective purchases and uh the the, the guy you're talking about we eventually and it took a lot of uncovering uh found that he had been selling um uh, false british her- hereditary titles to uh americans who didn't know better and i think he got caught out in the end and he sold one to a uh, an american senator who found out the truth <laughs> of uh, who what he bought but um uh, yeah, we, we we had some incredible ups and downs, and almost on a daily basis. And I think there's, you know, we we had days when we thought we've we've cracked it, we've got a a future. We, you know, have got some money from Honda, we've got some sponsorship, and other days where you just thought, you know, this is kind of it. Um, but all you can do is plow on. And I think there's, you know, Ross and myself and the other um, directors works incredibly well together and I think that was the power of the team that um, Ross could concentrate at least most of the time on you know the technical side and uh, you know trying to put together a car which we had uh, had to do on a shoestring you know I could concentrate very much on you know potential investors and trying to raise some money and uh, Caroline, the lawyer, and Nigel, the finance director, and John, the uh, the HR director, could concentrate on you know doing their jobs brilliantly. But everyone, I think, did a, a very good job individually. But I think the power of it was that the, the five of us were together incredibly strongly. And I think you know I know it's a sort of hackneyed thing to say that people talk about teamwork. But when it's you're in that situation or Formula One generally, it is all about the team and. Um, you know the the best people that I've worked with, and, and Michael Schumacher would be, uh, you know, very high up on that list. Really understood the power of pulling the team together and everyone working well together. And I think we were just the epitome of um, a great teamwork. In those sort of dog days, the the winter of two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine, you must have known, or at least had an inkling, that you had a decent car, even though designers and engineers routinely exaggerate how good they are you, you mentioned later in the book that Ron Dennis rang you up and wanted to know your aero numbers you know, were, were you that confident yourself that you had a, a great car just parked waiting to run no not at all I mean we felt that you know we really um, jacked in the 2008 season I mean it was clear that the car wasn't going to be good enough and although you can't completely give up after we got Ross on board the focus was really on 2009 the focus was on the regulation changes and we knew that if we started work on that earlier than the others then that might give us a bit of an advantage internally the objective was to be top three um, when Honda pulled out and decided they didn't want to uh, to, to sell us or let that let us have the engine you know even even on a purchase basis you know, we definitely reduced our target. We thought, well, if we can get kind of into the top half, we might be doing well. So we really you know, genuinely did not know how quick the car was. And the simulations that were done, uh, the computer simulations, frankly, we didn't believe. I mean, there was some work done which indicated we were like a second and a half quicker than all the others um, at the start of testing, which obviously we didn't participate in the start of testing. So we could only kind of look at what we've got from our aero numbers and um and sort of make a guesstimate and the numbers were discarded as ridiculous because they were were so good and it was only when we we did a little test around silverstone in terrible conditions um literally under a sort of a garden awning i mean that was the sort of level we were working at with uh, you know about 10 engineers under um you know something that you'd uh, you know you'd have three friends around to, to have a picnic um, and then when we got to uh, to Barcelona to the um, the first test and it was just like the first lap, it was just unbelievable. I mean, it was really only then because you don't let yourself believe that you can be that good. But we were we were even better than the numbers showed because when we realised how quick we were, we were kind of putting weight in the car to slow down to try and um, sandbag a bit. But even then, we were still uh, you know first and second in that last test. And you still weren't home at all, were you? Because 
you were operating on a hugely reduced budget. Dear, now, let, let me get the facts right. You, you, in effect, bought the company for a pound, but taking on the liabilities, is that? We couldn't find any acceptable buyer. Um, and, and as I say, Honda deserve great credit because they weren't just willing to offload it. And uh, their view, quite rightly, was, you know, well, we may as well take our pain and shut it down rather than, uh, sell it to someone who is inappropriate and then we're going to kind of have a, a, a lot of grief thereafter so I mean Ross and I were seen as probably the best of a bad lot <laughs> which uh, which sums it up um, and you know we we bought it for a pound on the basis that we just took it as it was with you know all the people that we had so uh, you know obviously the first job sadly was to cut back uh, you know massively I think we went from uh, 700 odd people to about 400 uh, virtually overnight which meant well we were we were running on an absolute uh, shoestring I mean I, I would be the, the bad guy most of the time and you know literally sit down there you know person by person and work out who we could afford to send to races and uh, you know that included not not sending myself in many cases and uh, you know Ross and I tried to you know be the best possible teammates team members by doing what we expected everyone else to do so we spent a uh, a lot of time on EasyJet. Yeah that's another thing that comes over from the book isn't it the amount of time you you spent on EasyJet flights which uh, can't have been pleasant because it's not like that for anyone else. Uh. Well you know it's, it's kind of it, it brings it home that um, you know on the one hand we were standing on the podium receiving a trophy and uh, you know three hours later we would be uh, on the 11 o'clock flight to Luton in seat 35D uh, with the rest of the fans, which frankly was great fun. It was great fun for the fans that were around us, and it was uh, it was good for us. But uh, we did have to endure, uh, you know, uh, one o'clock in the morning at Luton in a, uh, a queue of 200, 300 people uh, waiting to get through passport control. But uh, it does you with, good with to uh, <laughs> with a trophy under your arm. But it's uh, it's good for you bought, be, being uh, brought back down to earth. That must have been quite tricky, actually. I remember in my years covering the European Le Mans series, one driver took his uh, his tried to get the trophy on the plane with him and uh, the security were having none of it and he told them he had his grandma's ashes in it <laughs> well I mean word gets around uh, quite quickly and I have to say um, we were well looked after in that um, you know the, this ridiculously small team that had been on uh, death's door starting to be successful and I have to say you know even airlines and uh, you know passport officers and you know invariably I was the the last one uh, to leave England to uh, to go to races so you know what happens in a Formula One team is all those last minute bits get dumped on the last person to go so invariably I ended up uh, you know, having discussions with uh, customs officers, or what's in this? Or it's Jensen Button's seat, and uh, <laughs> you know. But we were indulged, and everyone thought it was very amusing, and it was just a time of uh, a great challenge, but great uh, camaraderie. Let's dig a little bit deeper into that because around that time, and this is something else people might not know and won't know until they've read your book, is is that very quickly you went from having entertained a few sort of no hopers, weirdos, chances freaks, losers, oddballs, into getting very serious offers from, let's say, better-known entities, and one of whom was Bernie Eccleston, who went from kind of wanting the whole team killed with fire to wanting to buy it. And you, you come up with this fascinating exchange where you go into Bernie's office and his opening gambit is, Max says, you'll see you next Tuesday. <laughs> Dealing with Bernie is endlessly entertaining and, uh, you know, laughing aside, he's an incredibly um, impressive character to, to, to have had to deal with. And you learn a lot when you uh, you work with someone like that. But, I mean, what uh, the, one of the other sort of layers which, you know, frankly, the book doesn't bore people with too much. But, you know, as well as everything else going on, this was a time when the teams were trying to negotiate, you know, a new commercial contract. And what tends to happen then is it's a bit like, uh, you know, a public vote, the more, you know, people on one side and Ferrari were in those days, certainly invariably on, um, uh, you know, Bernie's side, because he gave them the most money to be on his side. So that was kind of fairly straightforward. But then the the game was how many others you could get on kind of your side to, uh, um, to, 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 to vote for Bernie's point of view. So one of the mechanisms that uh, Bernie tried was, uh, you know, suggesting that he would buy the team from us. 
and so we had a very uh, entertaining, uh, 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 rather rude conversation in that uh, typical Bernie fashion. He wanted the team, but he didn't want to pay much for it. So uh, <laughs> I got uh, dispatched from his office with, uh, I think his, his words were, uh, if you effing well think you can do it yourself, go and do that. And so we did, I guess. But uh, but Bernie was one that um, expressed a level of interest and uh uh, the, the others, which was a very nice uh, conversation, was with the uh, the Glazer uh, family, who obviously had um, uh, Manchester United or had and have Manchester United, and uh, with Alex Ferguson, and uh, you know they had, I think, the the, the very good idea of um, you know having Ross Braun as an icon of uh, of our industry and Sir Alex uh, as an icon, you know, kind of together in the same portfolio. There would have been uh, potential economies for, uh, from getting sponsorship. You know, and Manchester United are a machine as far as the commercial side, and that would have worked very nicely for two entities. So there was a lot of logic to it, and uh, I think from the conversations we had with um, with Ed, Ed Woodward, who's now the uh, the chairman of Man U, who's a fantastically uh, you know bright character, I think from a personal point of view, it would have been great fun, but. Um, the problem was that uh, Mercedes um, clearly were a better bet with a, uh, a proven Formula One engine and uh, a football team doesn't have one of those. So this, we did the sensible thing, um, which was, um, was was selling the team to, to, to Mercedes. I think there's a tremendous temptation to try and carry on because, you know, we've been very successful. We'd, um, um, you know, beaten all the odds. Uh, everyone thought we were wonderful. The reality is the two private individuals can't carry on um, running a Formula One team. And I think, sadly, um, what has happened subsequently where even great teams like Williams and McLaren have um, you know, fallen by the wayside a bit really shows that uh, unless you've got the backing of uh, you know, Ferrari and Fiat Group and uh, that huge entity or Mercedes-Benz or Red Bull, uh, frankly, you've got no chance. And the fact that um, I think I'm right in saying every race for the last five years has been won by three teams, um, you know, shows that uh, it's m- money that counts at the end of the day. The way that the commercial settlement works in Formula One is firstly, throughout 09, you weren't getting a great deal of money because the team's poor finishing positions the years before. But also, even though you, you were being successful, it wasn't as if 1st of January. Uh, 2010, you were going to get a huge check through the door, was it? You you get that money in stages. Is it 11 months of the year or something like that? So yeah, you, you you do get paid with the uh, the benefit of hindsight, with with you know, looking backwards, as it were. Um, unless you go begging to Bernie and ask for a uh, um, uh, you know uh, some support, but uh, that usually comes with a price as well. Strings, so yeah. uh, so probably not the best thing to do. But um, you know, it was pretty clear that we would would have we would really struggle to continue and we'd really mortgage the future by putting everything we had pretty much into uh, into 2009 so we went into 2010 fortunately with the backing of mercedes-benz um but you know pretty lean which might have been okay if the budget cuts which 10 years later are still being talked about had been implemented but um you know, it, it, it didn't get the support that it needed. I think that if the budget cuts which had been proposed at that time had been implemented, we might have had a chance. But as we went through 2009, it became increasingly clear that that was unlikely. Um, so, um, you know, Mercedes are a great company. They've just got great resources in Formula One. The engine's absolutely wonderful and still is. Um, and they're good to deal with. So, you know, we made exactly the right decision and uh, you know I think uh, what's happened subsequently has proven that um, you know how, how good the team was but also how good the team is and credit to them for continuing with uh, with great performance. I'll circle back to the issue of budget caps a bit later if I may but just while we're kind of on the subject of the Glazers and Mercedes I was actually very surprised at how torn you were um, in the book when you say that you know there, there was a meeting and you sort of discussed which which offer to entertain because with my limited understanding of of football and its business because I'm more of a rugby fan my understanding was always that the Glazers it was a leverage buyout it was a bit unpopular at the time it saddled the business with a lot of debt and okay so they do well commercially 
but it's it's quite a risk so i was when i first read about them in the context of owning an f1 team i kind of thought well maybe that's not necessarily a great business proposition and yet it, it did seem like like you and the team were genuinely torn which which offer to go with yeah i mean i i, th- I think it was sort of the, the the votes that I talk about in the book between one and the other was sort of semi-jokey, I would say. But, you know, from a, a personal point of view, you know, when you've you've run a company, even for a relatively short period of time, yourselves, and you're very fleet on your on your feet. I mean, I, I remember having a conversation with Ross where he said, you know, even at Ferrari, he had the feeling that someone was looking over his shoulder and uh, checking, you know, whether he was making the right decisions. And you know, for 2009, I think part of the beauty of the situation was you know, Ross and I had a controlling interest you know, of the team. Um, and you know, if something went wrong and we made the wrong decision, you know, we'd sit usually in my office, which was somewhat more comfortable than Ross's uh, at that time, and uh, just kind of have a bit of a laugh and say, well, we won't do that again, will we? And you'd move on. But there was none of the sort of recriminations or having to justify what you did. And I think that freedom actually, you know, certainly on the pit wall for Ross and the guys, you know, helped a lot so that we could make decisions without feeling that we had to explain to anyone. It was only us and, you know, we, we had enough money in the bank at least to keep us going until the end of the season. So we didn't have a bank manager even that we had to uh, discuss things with. So it was, a, it was a very unique situation. And when you meet someone like the Glazers who, you know, delegate a lot to Ed and his team, um, you're, you're kind of talking to kindred spirits. So I think there was a, you know, a liking from that point of view, but from the point of view of what is the right thing to do for the company and the employees and the suppliers and everyone else you have to deal with, then there's no doubt that, um, you know, going with Mercedes-Benz was the uh, the correct business decision. Ross comes over in the book as being a spectacularly no-nonsense character you get quite a lot of that when when you interview him in real life. He's always very guarded, though. Is is is, is he like that um, sort of behind the scenes? His great skill is that he he is a good a great team player, and it's very clear with with Ross and he he, he he's got a, a great family and they're a very tight knit family. But he I think runs the, the the Formula One team in exactly the same way. And there's an expectation that you know, if you're going to have a, a a discussion or an argument, that's fine. But you have it, you know, in the room together. Um, it doesn't go outside the room, and you make a decision, you get on with it, and you operate as a team. He's a lovely person to deal with, and he's not tough to deal with. But he's very good at his job, and I think the people in Formula One almost across the board, are very good at what they do. And I you know, I came from the outside, from the car industry, didn't know quite what to expect. You think, well, you know, you're with a bunch of um, you know people who have a great life traveling around the world and uh, having a nice life spending other people's money. But I think what you quickly find, you know, pretty much across the board is that whether it's a marketing person, whether it's a, a finance person or a purchasing person or whatever they might be, they are very good. And that is... The only bit of Formula One really that I miss is um, working with just fantastic people. And, uh, you know, Ross is the pinnacle of the uh, the engineering team. Um, but he's not um, he's not difficult to work with, but he expects you know people to work together. And it's it's no nonsense, but it's a it's it's a pleasurable experience. I was I was fascinated to read as well that as part of that business of not having vast quantities of other people's money to spend anymore you had to institute some quite tight financial regulations so any purchase of more than 75 quid had to be signed off by you or ross or nigel kurt now as managers that must have been quite an undertaking because one of you had to be available at any time to sign off one of these checks yeah i mean i'm sure um everyone realizes that in most companies you know budgets are set at the beginning of the year and then the department heads or, or whoever they are you know that's their responsibility to spend that money and and we quickly decided well you know the best way to control it wasn't to give any money to anyone um we would just approve everything ourselves and we had um 
you know, a, a funny experience I had with Ron Meadows, the team manager, fairly on, early on where he came to my office and made the mistake of saying uh, he wanted to buy something and uh, said it's only 100 quid. And I said, well, if it's only 100 quid, you won't mind paying out of your salary then because <laughs> it's our bloody money. And, uh, you know, we... Uh, and I think the key to it, you, you, you couldn't do that on an ongoing basis, I don't think. But under this crisis situation, um, it was just a matter of making decisions very quickly. And uh, and I think once you got over the initial shock that there, there wasn't any money and we were literally you know, working on every hundred quid. I mean, in most Formula One teams, you know, everything comes in hundreds of thousands or millions. So, you know, it was a bit of a shock to the team to be working to such tight budgets to start with. But once everyone got into the swing of it, I think it worked reasonably well. But uh, it did rely on one of the three of us making a decision very quickly. And, uh, and I think, again, it was the power of working together and trusting each other, which, um, which, which took us through the crisis. Did you have to carry on with that? all year even while you were entertaining advances from people like the Glazers Tony Fernandez you mentioned as well and Mercedes because you say you know that was March after the Australian Grand Prix you, you first got interest from these people but you didn't get the deal over the line with Mercedes until the end of the year so presumably that was quite a big financial no man's land you had to tread through before the the, the buyout then took place yeah we we were eking out the money as as much as we could because we had no idea what the future held. I mean, maybe you know the uh, the knight in shining shining armor would not appear. In which case, you know, we had what we had, and the idea was to how how far into 2010 could we get before uh, we went belly up? And the the finances were done in a in an incredibly simplistic way. I mean, we. We knew roughly you know, what budget we had, which was rel- relatively or well, very small. Um, you know, we we cut back the number of people dramatically, um, and and frankly, the the going in position was, you know, we we need to pay off everyone at the end of the two thousand and nine season on the same terms that Honda had given people, or we 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 had the. Yeah, if we'd have closed down the team, Honda would have paid people fairly generously. They would have paid them probably above the state minimum, which was the appropriate thing to do. So Ross and I felt that if we closed down at the end of the 2009 season, we had a moral obligation to pay people as they would have been paid a year earlier. So we kind of put that money aside, as it were, to um, to, 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 to give to people if the worst came to the worst. And what we had left was the budgets. And I think if I remember rightly, um, up until the summer shutdown, I think on the development of the car, we spent about £600,000 in total. Now, at that time, you know, Red Bull was rumoured to be spending, you know, one or two million per race on development parts, etc. And, you know, we knew they they were all going to catch up from a technical point of view because, uh, you know, they were able to throw so much money at it. So we, we turned the tap down as far as we could um, until really the summer shutdown and then it became clear the others were catching up very quickly and um, you know Jensen was having a wobble or two and so we turned the tap on briefly to uh, to give us a few more uh, parts to make the thing go a bit more quickly but it was it was a matter of spending the minimum we possibly could to get the thing across the line and championship winning position and then have as much as we could in our back pocket to see us through to whatever was on the other side and we really didn't know what was on the other side so you know it was a matter of saving as much as possible yeah i think just flicking through my notes you said it was a matter of going from basically a 200 million pound annual budget to two which is, yeah. is more than the third you were talking about earlier wasn't it that's very very drastic isn't yeah it? We, we i mean but and that's really why in the in the following year especially we we did relatively poorly um you know we simply had not been able to invest in anything i mean in in a formula one team normally you have one team working on the current car and you have another team of people or at least a smaller team uh, but somebody working on the future and we couldn't afford to have anyone working on the future to any great extent so um you know when the budget cuts didn't come into uh into action you know we were left pretty much high and dry with a car that um you know had suffered from you know pretty much no development Obviously, our, our listeners, readers in the magazine, when they read the interview that comes from this, will know how the season 
panned out um you, you the, the turn of phrase you use in the book possibly coming from the journalistic pen of your co-author is that <laughs> jensen made uh, rather heavy weather of it tell me if i'm being unfair here you you say you had a sort of kind of a creative loss of temper uh, creative loss of temper rather i was about to say temperature you had a creative loss of temper with richard goddard at your meeting uh, about his ongoing contract or his not ongoing contract I, I kind of got the impression that you felt that you were better off without him in a way is that is that fair to say that after, after no that I, I, I think that would be unfair i mean i think that um you know the team and you know, me as an individual, we've been with Jensen for a long time and we've been through a lot. I mean, um, not only just poor performance of the uh, the Honda car and, and kind of getting through that, but also, you know, William, Button Gate 1 and 2, I think it was called at the time, Jensen signed contracts, uh, you know, with another team that we, you know, frankly helped him get out of in a, in a pretty generous way. Um it's almost like a season ticket loan that um, some of our listeners might have from their employer. Exactly. I mean, exactly the same thing. And I, I think that, um, you know, and we, he became world champion and fair dues to him. He's a, he's a very good driver, uh, but we had a very good car as well. And I think that um, to jump ship, you know, in the way that he did, um, you know, didn't maybe reflect the uh, the help that we've given him over the years. And, you know, my attitude to people leaving, you know, the, the, the company that you run is when you feel that they're doing the right thing and you can't compete, then good luck to them. So when someone's going to a better job with much more money than you can offer, but, you know, my feeling at the time, and I think sadly it was proven out by the realities, is that, you know, he was making a poor decision, frankly, as he had done, you know, on a couple of occasions before when we had to bail him out. Um, so, you know, he and I, you know, when we do talk or see each other from time to time, it's perfectly cordial. But I kind of get left with a feeling of what might have been and what might have been there for Jensen, because, you know, he's a, he's a lovely guy. He's a great guy to, uh, to work with. We worked together for a long time. And if he had stayed with the team and seen it out, you never know. He may have been uh, world champion more than uh, more than once. And uh, I think, uh, I can't remember how many races he won, won with McLaren, but he won a few. But uh, generally, it all kind of petered out, which is, is sad. And, uh, you know, I think when you write a book like this, you, you know, there, there are a lot of, you know, what might have been. And, uh, you know, Jensen going was a, was a disappointment. And I get, did give... Uh, him and his manager, the sharp edge of my tongue in a fairly, uh, you know, dramatic fashion, which is detailed in the book. And I think Jensen spoke about it um, a little bit as well in uh, in his book. But, um, you know, it would have been nice to have uh, won some more with Jensen. But indeed, it would have been nice if we'd have won with Michael. There might have been no Michael Schumacher comeback if Jensen had stayed, mightn't there? Because you were fairly fixed on um, Nico Rosberg, for the other seat, you decided that Rubens was sort of a figure of the past, and and that to me is very interesting because at the time there was this feeling that uh, Nico was um, something of a journeyman, or in some ways you know, he'd shown good form in qualifying a lot, but then you know he'd been a little bit indifferent in, in what had been quite a few seasons with Williams, and I know in the book you say people view him as kind of being someone who was just there because of his dad. My 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 impression of him, maybe from a different perspective, is his dad wasn't his dad tried to keep out of his business quite a lot. So maybe that's a, a notion you can shoot down as well. You know, what what was it you saw in Nico? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, some people, some of your colleagues were incredibly negative, and um, you know, let, 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 you know, made it clear to me that I was making a really dumb decision uh, in uh, in hiring Nico. But I think you have to look at um, uh, people. And their skill sets, and I, I know there's recently been some uh, some people say saying you know, bad things about Nico, and but I think some drivers have immense natural talents, but maybe they're not as bright as uh, you know others, or maybe they're not as hardworking. Um, and there are people like Nico who still has an incredible level of talents. I mean, I think I think the the difficulty of all these conversations is that you're talking about a two percent difference is the reality. I mean, the difference between you know a genius like uh, Lewis Hamilton and you know another Formula One driver who's still capable of winning races or even wins the World Championship is relatively small. 
but it's enough to make the difference. It's a bit, it's a, you know, it's why does you know Ronaldo or Messi score a goal when others can't? It's just that uh, you know that natural brilliance. Um, but these people are all incredibly good, um, and it, it, it's almost I find it unfair to talk about them as one's better than the other because they are, but they're all still at the top of their game. And I think Nico's a, a great driver, but what Nico I think brings along is uh, a great degree of intelligence. I mean, I think I'm, I'm right in saying he, you know he could have gone to Imperial College in London to study engineering mm. uh, if I remember rightly and, and that comes through he has different attributes and uh, you know his dad had very little to do with um, you know him coming to our team and I think that's impressive unto itself I mean with some drivers and I've had numerous over the years who come along with uh, you know the manager and uh, you know the army b- behind them and he, when I first met uh, Nico to discuss his contracts uh, uh, Lord March kindly gave us a, uh, a room upstairs somewhere at uh, at the Goodwood Festival of Speed and, uh, you know, Nico turned up by himself and, uh, you know, but he's got the brains to do that and, and some of them have and Sebastian Loeb, when I was in rallying, was another one who was very impressive in that, although at that time his, his English wasn't good at all, he turned up by himself and when I said, you know, who, who, who manages you, it was, well, I get some advice from mum and dad who are school teachers and, uh, you know, I think, I think Nico's got a huge range of skill and just to sort of, criticize him on the basis that he may be not the natural driver that maybe Lewis is is really missing the point he has a range of skills which got him to uh, to be world champion just as uh, as, as Jensen did and in in the book you say that ultimately you ended up getting more out of Michael Schumacher than he got out of you as Mercedes so maybe this is an appropriate juncture to kind of tie off the ongoing development, the resource restriction agreement, but also talk a little bit about what Michael Schumacher brought to the renamed Mercedes team. What he brought to Nico as well, because I hear a fantastic story and um, you can tell me whether it's true or not, or whether you've even heard it, but uh, there was a story, I think in China one year, obviously drivers like to relieve themselves before practice or qualifying or whatever the session is and there's one toilet which michael went and made sure he occupied before this vitally important session while there's nico kind of banging on the door (laughs) to be let in to use the bog and eventually the engineers call nico away saying that you you must get in the car now so he he has to then do that session with an unemptied bladder and that was his sort of crash course in Michael Schumacher mind games now firstly do you know if that's true I, I, I have no idea if that's true I would be surprised if it is because um, I, I you know I, I think that some um, people like to characterize especially in the UK you know all certainly did you like to characterize you know Michael as this uh, sort of dastardly German who uh, played all sorts of uh, all sorts of tricks um, and I can honestly say I didn't see that. Um, you know, what I saw was someone who um, was very good at being a great team player. And, you know, I think I've I've seen, you know, by both sides of the coin, um, you know, and I'll be frank about this, my, my, my introduction to um, Formula One was working with Jack Villeneuve, who... Um, you know, seemed at that time to take great delight in walking to the car with his helmet on so he didn't have to talk to anyone and didn't really seem to have much relationship with um, a lot of the mechanics or even know who the hell they were. Um, whereas Michael was the other end of the scale. You know, he was genuinely the person who realised that, you know, in order for him to perform at the highest level, he had to get everyone else to perform at the highest level. And that's why he was so immensely successful over a, a long period of time. And, uh, you know, I'd like to think that, uh, you know, when Lewis comes on the radio at the end of uh, a race and thanks the team, he's not doing that for the benefit of, uh, of PR. He knows full well that unless the thousand people or whatever it is now at Brackley are all doing their job perfectly, he ain't going to win. And I think Michael really understood that. And I didn't see any particular, um, you know, mind games or silliness between the two drivers. In fact, quite the opposite. I, you know, saw almost a, a fatherly approach, uh, you know, from Michael. And I think, you know, these these uh, drivers who are later on in their career have got immense experience. You know, frankly, although they want to beat their teammates, you know, they're also realised that, you know, sooner or later they're going to stop driving and the other guy is going to... So you're almost sort of handing over bits of your knowledge. And I think that, uh, you know, when all is said and done with Michael Schumacher, you know, I think he'll be on an even higher pedestal than uh, 
than he than he is in uh, most people's minds now. Yeah, you you do mention that the experience of working with Michael kind of turned um, Nico from a, a potential race winner into an actual championship winner, don't you? Everything he learned, he sort of banked, and during that, so was it? I mean, twenty sixteen, isn't it? He went to his his crew and said, oh, "I'm not as fast as Lewis, but if we do it this way, we can win." Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think I think others, you know, I think have said the same. I, you know, I don't know the relationship between uh, Sebastian Vettel and Michael, but I think Sebastian has uh, learned a lot, and I think the intelligent ones do. You know, they they're looking around and seeing, you know, what does that guy do well, and you know, how can I, uh, you know, how, how can I replicate that, and how can it help me? And uh, you know, I think uh, Michael was a uh, a master of um, of Formula One. I'm very amused also to learn that your first approach to him was in the Amber Lounge party. <laughs> yeah, we thought we'd give it a go. I mean, when it was clear that, um, you know, things weren't going well with Jensen, that his aspiration for uh, salary was well in excess of, uh, you know, what we thought was reasonable. Um, you know, we were we were pretty stuck, to be honest. It was, it was late in the year. Um, you know, there were some you know, decent drivers. Uh, you know, Nick Heidfeld was doing very well at the time. You know, he was certainly um, on the consideration set, but, you know, there wasn't the superstar, you know, there. And, you know, I think Ross and I had, had a couple of beers and uh, Michael was there. And, I, you know, I said to uh, to Ross, uh, you know, is your mate going to have a chat and uh, let's see. And, um, you know, five minutes later, Ross came back beaming and said, uh, you know, he's up for a chat. And uh, just it was a it was a great moment. And, uh, you know, and, and, and him driving um for us was was incredible um just the disappointment is you know although we got one podium i think uh you know he never won which really for me would have been uh you know the icing on the cake what do you think he brought to mercedes that wasn't there um when you initially made the transfer to mercedes and braun braun gp became mercedes gp and you began 2010 with a pretty much undeveloped car michael just brings a um an intensity um, and an ability or a willingness to work incredibly hard. And, you know, those discussions of, you know, um, briefings and debriefings, which are hour upon hour upon hour of, uh, you know, just unrelentlessly, you know, looking at how we could do better. Um, He takes, you know, even later in his career, you know, he took to, you know, a different level. And, uh, you know, most of the drivers, especially if you've done, ironically, when you've done well in a race, you know, and maybe you've won, the temptation is to have a quick debrief and everyone goes off and, uh, you know, has a beer or gets a plane or do whatever they're going to do. And, you know, I think what you find um, in in Formula One and and in, in business in general, you've really got to capture the experience then leaving it till the Monday morning is uh, is too late. It's really you've got to capture as much information on what went wrong, what went right, and uh, you know Michael's willingness as a you know a multi multi millionaire having won you know seven world championships, his willingness to sit there for three four hours was unprecedented, and I think that you know a lot of the other drivers have obviously uh, you know picked up on that willingness to uh, knuckle down. Yeah. Was that something that wasn't happening before? Do you think even it, it happened before, situation? but I think not to the same not to the same extent. One of the threads that I promised we'd pick up on, and we're now at the right part in the timeline to talk about it, is the kind of the push towards resource restriction. Now, at the beginning of 2010, you were going into that championship ostensibly a much higher budget operation because you'd got the Petronas sponsorship, you had Mercedes ownership, you had the slightly strange sludge grey rather than silver file uh, car. But you you hadn't had that development in season. So you'd actually probably by that point technically fallen behind rivals, particularly Red Bull, who'd been spending all that money. Yeah, I mean, one of my... I'm a Formula One fan at the end of the day. Um, Before I... You know, having to uh, find uh, you know myself in charge of a team. Um, you know, I've been a, a Formula One fan and went with my dad when I was sort of twelve, thirteen years old. And I think the frustration is that you know everyone knows what needs to be done, and the uh, the situation at the moment, which again, uh, you know, Ross and um, Liberty Media are trying to resolve, is uh, is making it a little bit fairer. And uh, when you have a situation where um, you know 
a, a number of the teams, a small number of the teams, get the lion's share of the rewards, as well as having the best backing, as well as having the best drivers, as well as having the best, uh, you know, resources. Um, and then you practice the cars for a couple of days, line them up on the grid with the fastest at the front and the slowest at the back. You know, surprise, surprise, you end up with, you know, the inevitable result. And unless that's broken down, it's difficult to see how that radically changes. And for a, you know, a sport where only three competitors have, have won in a long time, that is a pretty, you know, miserable situation. And I think that's, uh, you know, the the unfair distribution of income needs to be addressed. And clearly, that's a tough tough call for those who get the most money um and you know the, the the fact that you know someone mentioned to me that uh you know brackley now there are you know 1200 people um you know that is an incredible um amount of money that is being spent on on, on human beings just for the chassis alone as well as the uh, probably 800 or a thousand people working on the engine and frankly you know you can't compete with that and unless there is a a top-down approach, um, I'm not sure how you resolve it. And, uh, you know, it's not in the book, but, uh, you know, I remember, you know, during the course of, um, of, of 2009 into 2010, having a chat on the phone with, uh, with Jean Todd and kind of pleading with him to, uh, you know, really sort this out and dictates what needed to be done in the, the same way as uh, as probably Max will have done it and uh, you know I think there's there's almost 10 lost years and yes the team that uh, I was lucky enough to own and run has continued to uh, do brilliantly and um, that's fantastic in one way but I do think that uh, from a fan's point of view um, things could have been different if uh, if the income had been spread more fairly and um, if the cost of competing had been a bit more uh, moderate. Because that was a crucial time, wasn't it? 2010, you had FOTA, as, as it was then, that was becoming quite powerful. I mean, is it fair to say FOTA was kind of on the glide path towards Bernie, kind of killing it off by then? Because it had become a bit of a thorn in Bernie's side, hadn't it? And FOTA was very for resource restrictions and and ross has said in some interviews he's done that arguably one of the reasons for mercedes not exploding out the box um in its recent for in its in its new form from 2010 2011 onwards was that you were kind of trying to work towards this resource restriction agreement budget yep. and, and you were the poster boys bought for it weren't you you'd we slimmed were, down no, absolutely so you, you were the, you were the example but somehow bernie managed to chip away the resolve of the other teams and it became every man for himself again yeah i mean the thing you have to understand when you run a formula one team you are paid to do a job and the job you are paid to do is to win um and frankly i mean and, and this is you know, some people will be, will will say, oh, you know, this is the, the 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 root cause of the problem. But you know, when you're paid to win and you're employed to win, that's what you do. And the fortunes of your team have to come before the fortunes of the sports. And it's kind of it's funny to watch from the outside how people's attitudes change. And uh, you know, if I can uh, sort of pick on. Uh, Red Bull and Christian and uh, oh, please do um, a, a little bit. I mean, at, at one stage it's you know wanting you know a fairer distribution and um, you know some of those restrictions to be in place. But as soon as you get a car manufacturer um, behind you, in this case Honda, you know Honda's attitude is, I think you know certainly in in, in the days I worked with them was that if there were no rules at all, that would be a good thing. You know, if it was you know not even prescribing the number of cylinders in the engine for a very technical company that just loves engineering and is very strong on that side um, that would have been a very appealing type of formula one but the the budgets would have gone completely through the roof and you know when you've got money you know you're very in favor of you know it being a very high cost sports because it plays to your strengths that you've got the money and you're going to do better because of that but you know when you haven't got any money, of course, you argue the opposite. And it's kind of amusing to watch from the outside. People's views change very quickly depending on which side of the fence they're on. How difficult was it, having kind of sold Mercedes on this low-cost, um, relatively low-risk vision of being competitive in, in F1, how difficult was it to then have to go back to them and persuade them 
to spend a bit more saying, sorry, I'm afraid Red Bull, Christian, etc., have driven a coach and horses through the RRA. We're going to need to. We're going to need a bigger boat, basically. Um, I mean, I, I, I think a company like Mercedes are, are realists, and they've been involved in Formula One for a long, long time. So, I mean, they kind of understood. They may not have liked it, but they understood, you know, the name of the game. But the problem was that we had underinvested, and then had a. Uh, a hard time for a couple of years catching up again because those people, some of those important people that we'd let go, we were on a massive, you know, hiring um, uh, spree. Um, you know, I hired a um, a human resources person specifically to um, a senior human resources people specifically to rehire engineers, and we went on a you know a mission to get back you know, some of those talented people that um, that we'd lost or had to let go at the beginning of, uh, of 2009. But these people, you know, in many cases were, you know, employed with other teams or they'd found other jobs or what have you. So it was, it was, it was slow work. So I think it really took us, you know, a good couple of years. I mean, if I remember rightly, the next race win was 2013, if I remember rightly. Was it China then? Oh, it might be 12, um, actually. Was it 12? China. Okay, yeah. it took us a couple of years um, to get back, uh, you know, at least to, you know, a race-winning position again. So it just shows that if you do fall behind, then it's bloody difficult to uh, to pick things up again. What was it like going from owner to being an employee again? Was that a difficult cultural change? Um Difficult, yes, but I think you have to be a big boy or a big girl um, in those situations. I mean, we had decided to sell the team. Um, The team had become the property of someone else. And, you know, you have to be respectful that it's, you know, it's their toy and they wanted to run it in a certain way with certain people. And, you know, I think when you, you know, you know, neither Ross and I are new to business, you have to be very realistic that things are going to change and things are going to change dramatically um but i think the um one of the reasons that mercedes is so successful um in in running a formula one team is that they don't impose their view in the same way that perhaps i saw with toyota or even with honda i mean the mercedes attitude certainly at that time was look you know we will show you the resources that we've got they're at your disposal, but it's your choice. We're not going to we're not going to force them on you. Um, it's your choice whether you use them. Now, in brackets, you could write, but if you don't, and if you're not successful, then you know the consequences uh, might not be too pleasant. But they don't try and run the team, um, and so I think you know they 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 understand Formula One and they are good Formula One team owners and. You know they've developed one hell of a Formula One engine, which is uh, you know at least uh, you know part of the key to it. Were did you ever get any impression that they were getting a little bit impatient for success? Because the the impression we got was that first Nicky and then Toto were sort of brought in because there was there was a little bit of worrying that you'd only got the one win by that point. Sort of. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely. Yeah, I mean, everyone wants to win. You know that day, that week, um, and it was frustrating. There's, you know, we 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 weren't successful for a couple of uh, for a couple of years, and uh, um, you know they they wanted to bring in their own people. I mean, you know, realistically, when we uh, we we sold the team, I think you think, well, you know, if this lasts three years, then uh, you know we'd be doing pretty well because they want to do things in their own way, and I think that's entirely natural and. You know, to be expected, and I think the uh, the lovely thing is that you know I think everyone won out of this. I mean, uh, you know, Ross and I got a nice world championship, and uh, you know, we, we we sold the team for more than we bought it for, which was very nice. Um, Mercedes have got a, a fantastic team, which has continued to do uh, you know brilliantly, uh, brilliantly well. The employees have got a uh, you know a great employer and. You know, I'm sure a lot of them have, or a number of them have become millionaires off the back of it. So, you know, good for them. And, uh, you know, I know full well that if I, you know, sat here now and sent a, uh, a text to, uh, you know, Ola Calais, the, uh, the, the, the new boss of Mercedes who, you know, ran AMG for, uh, you know, a good while and ran the, uh, the, the, the engine facility that makes the Formula One, you know, we get a response or I get a response, uh, you know, very quickly. And, you know, I think there's, 
a, a good relationship and everyone you know looks looks back on the whole transaction and what's happened uh you know fondly uh, another sort of profound influence you've had on the shape of the team now came from very very strange circumstances you mentioned the book a clandestine meeting in the park with with simon fuller over sandwiches and at the end of that particular journey you you employed lewis hamilton who's on it well on his way to becoming one of the most successful drivers well he still is already one of the most successful drivers of all time may before he retires become the most successful driver of all time but at that point was someone who was having a troubled relationship with his employer and who, let's face it ron doesn't come out in his rare appearances as, as one of your dramatis personae <laughs> doesn't come out brilliantly does he nick I think the points I wanted to make in the, the Lewis Hamilton chapter was to sort of really show that these things don't happen overnight. I mean, the the discussions with Lewis um, had gone, you know, way before that. Um, you know, Gilles de Ferran, uh, who was our sporting director at one stage, uh, you know, the, the famous Indy 500 winner, um, you know, had um, supper, some pasta cooked by Gilles at his house in Oxford before uh, Lewis got into Formula One. To discuss, you know, if if McLaren, you know, didn't give him the Formula One seats, um, then you know we were sort of standing by in the wings, and I'm sure that uh, Lewis and Anthony saw, uh, you know, a number of others. But you know, I think it it took you know several years for the uh, the Lewis thing to come together. Um, and frankly, and I know Ross has said this, but you know, credit to Nicky Lauda because we, we've been struggling a little bit to uh, persuade Mercedes that um, that Lewis was the right person for the team. And, you know, I'm sure the majority of that was, uh, even at that stage, a fairly eye-watering salary bill. And, I mean, it's difficult. I mean, I, I've worked for a long time in car companies and, you know, it's difficult for the chief executive of a huge corporation. And I think Mercedes is, is possibly the the 12th um, uh, best-known brand in the world, somewhere up there, to sign off a cheque to someone who's driving a damn racing car and having the time of their lives and sign off a salary which is a multiple of their own. I mean, there's a famous story in in Ford that um, um, I think it was Edsel Ford asked for a, a ranked listing of the... Um, the highest paid employees mm. and um uh, the highest was you know e irvine oh yeah who the um, hell is ed irvine, uh, who the hell is ed so. irvine? and uh, you know it's that type of shock of you know we're paying these people to drive around in circles more than and i, I yeah and, and and it was nicky that came along and uh when he was appointed chairman, he and I were chewing the cud over over drivers, and I went through this uh, long tale of uh, this courtship with Lewis and uh, Nicky. God bless him. Uh, just said, uh, you know, go and hire him, and uh, we'll ask for forgiveness later. And uh, that's what we went away and did. That's a very Nicky louder thing, isn't, isn't it? Sort of just do it, whatever it takes to become successful. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I it's been humbling to see close to some of these incredibly impressive figures um, which as we discussed earlier from the outside look flawed characters because they are flawed characters because you don't get that good at anything and you don't succeed unless you're a bit kind of kooky and have got some uh, maybe some foibles on the uh, the other side but uh, you know uh, spending a little bit of time with Nicky and you know one of the really um, everyone knows the story of what happened to Nicky at uh, the Nürburgring but uh, you know, and I, I knew the story as well as anyone else. But uh, when you when you hear Nicky Lauda tell that story, and uh, at this time it was the run up to the um, the Hunt versus Lauda movie, and and Nicky did uh, had a discussion with um, someone from the outside in my office, and uh, just said to me, "I'll just sit there, and you, you know, you can listen. It's no problem." And uh, to hear it firsthand from the person who went through what he did um, is extraordinary. And, and and these people are phenomenally impressive and just be to be able to work or have worked with a little bit with Nicky and uh, you know clearly Bernie and some of the other people and indeed Ron and uh, you know the the stories uh, in the book maybe Ron won't uh, appreciate too much but you know Ron's to achieve what he achieved from very humble beginnings to uh, you know a company which is uh, is now worth uh, you know probably several billion is uh, an incredible achievement. Formula One is a, is a sport populated by high achievers, isn't it? Not exclusively, because 
I, I think what, what, one thing we can end on in terms of the recruitment of, of Lewis is that you did get some pushback from Mercedes, not just about his salary, but they, they would have preferred Nick Heidfeld. And you're quite waspish about him. You say he's even sending me pictures of his wife and his dogs and stuff. Well, and it's th- clear that he's never in the same class as Lewis. No, no, no. I, th- I think it's, it's unfair to say that um, they, they preferred um, Nick, um, who, you know, was at that time and still is a very good driver. But I think it was just the balking at, um, you know, probably an, an eye-watering bill that came with it. And, you know, maybe there was other stuff that I didn't know about that had gone on, you know, in their relationship when he was uh, a McLaren. And, uh, you know, I, di- I didn't know about uh, any of that stuff. But, um, you know, there were a number of occasions where we got sent back to, uh, you know, what, what alternatives are there? So I think it's unfair to interpret it as they preferred, Nick. It was just... Um, Maybe they uh, they didn't like the size of the uh, the Lewis check. Now, post Formula One, you've gone and done loads of other stuff, very exciting things. Your uh, cut of the takings of the book is going to charity, so I'm, I'm presuming that you don't need to go and work as an author, and you're ticking along quite nicely. Would you be prepared to come back to Formula One if if you had the right offer? Do you do you need to work? If that's not too impersonal <laughs> a question, I, th- I think. Um it would be a bit like going back to an old girlfriend, um, probably, uh, you know, maybe in some respects uh, appealing, but probably, uh, you know, not the right thing to do. And I and I think you you can't relive those times. And, uh, you know, with due respect to, uh, you know, some of the people who hang around Formula One forever, you know, that's not me. Um, you know, and, and, and I've come from a completely different background. I mean, Formula One was part of my career you know I had a career in uh, the mainstream car industry you know before that with Ford and Aston Martin and uh, you know obviously did the uh, the rallying with uh, with Subaru and sports cars with uh, Ferrari and uh, you know Bathurst with uh, with with Ford etc so I, I had a life before Formula One and you know I'm incredibly grateful that I had those uh, yeah, 12 years, I think it was in the end, um, from start to finish in Formula One. But that was just part of my life. And, um, you know, one that I, you know, I'm incredibly pleased to uh, have had. But, you know, there's always a future. And I've been the type of person who, who always looks forward. So, you know, after, you know, we finished with Mercedes, there were various suggestions. But, uh, you know, it's a big, it's a big wide world. There's a lot of stuff out there, which is really interesting. And, uh you know, I'm uh, chairman of, um, among other things, uh, an esports team, Fnatic. Um, you know, at the moment, and uh, I've got about 15 other, maybe more, um, other business interests in different fields. And uh, you know, you you you, know, you you carry on learning, and you, uh, you have learned different things. And uh, you know, I'd be uh, reluctant to uh, to go around the same circle. It's always useful to know when to quit, isn't it? And I think uh, after our marathon recording session which is enough for a podcast in itself i'm going to seed that with our producer martin uh i I think it's time for us to bring this to an end uh nick thank you very much for joining us thanks very much thanks to nick fry for speaking to us we'll be back on january the 30th in the meantime there's lots of other podcasts from the motorsport network you'll hear me interviewing lando norris on the autosport podcast shortly If you're into milk float racing, there's the catchily titled Current Affairs. And if you speak Glaswegian and like motorbikes, then the Tank Slappers is for you. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.